There were three elderly sisters who lived together. And the oldest of them was getting tired. It was uh, getting late in the evening, so she headed up to bed. She got halfway up the stairs and then hollered down to the other two in the living room, was I going up or was I going down? The youngest said, you were heading to bed with an irritated, exasperated sigh. Shortly after that, the middle sister got up to go get a snack before she went to bed. She went into the kitchen and she hollered back to now the youngest sister and said, why did I come in here again? And the youngest one said, to get something to eat and then please go to bed. Again, exasperated. And the youngest sister said to herself, I am so glad I'm not as forgetful as they are as she knocked superstitiously on the end table. And then she got up and went to the front door and asked, who is it? <laughs> Some of you haven't gotten that yet. You'll get it. And when you do, don't start laughing. That'll be awkward. Listen, in pastoral language, two weeks ago, the last time you heard me preach, that's like an eon. You don't remember much. I know you, you don't even remember when I'm done preaching what I started at the beginning usually. So I'm going to do a review. Let me thank Pastor Matthew. What an excellent sermon he gave last week um, into the unknown. I think he lived that out with that ridiculously stupid looking facial hair. I don't know what he's thinking. That's exactly what I said to him this week. And, um, you know, he said something about VBS. VBS was done by noon on Friday. He's had a lot of chance to shave that thing. So we'll work on him on our end, but uh, you just pray. I'm going to review because it's important that we back up just a little bit before we go forward. We've covered four gates. Nehemiah is taking us on a tour around the wall of Jerusalem. We've, we've looked at four of the gates, four of the ten. There's actually twelve. He only hits ten of them in chapter three. I'm going to touch on one additional one. He won't get to that until later in the book, but it's in order, and so we'll touch on that briefly. If you remember the sheep gate, that's the, sh the first gate on the tour. The sheep gate is the gate of salvation. That's the gate that they brought the sheep in to the city through on the way to the temple to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. It symbolically points to the Lamb of God, to the cross where Jesus Christ died for our sins. If you haven't made it to the sheep gate, friends, then you don't have a wall around you that has the name salvation on it. You've got to stop at the sheep gate before you go on. And if your wall has fallen down, if your wall is in ruin, if your wall is in rubble, or a friend of yours, life is a mess, where you begin with them again is back at the sheep gate, because there is no power to rebuild a wall other than the power of the gospel, and that's access through the sheep gate. You go from the sheep gate, well, you, remember, you remember even at the sheep gate the words of Jesus. He says, I am the gate, right? I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. It's the gate of salvation, the sheep gate. And then you leave that gate. Nehemiah, remember, he's on tour. He's showing us these gates. He's starting at the sheep gate. He's going to go around counterclockwise. And the next gate that we see is the fish gate. It's the gate of witness. It's the gate where, okay, now you're saved. Now you've been to the cross. The blood of Christ has washed you from your sins. Now you get on mission and you testify of what Jesus has done in your life. 
The fish gate is the gate where you build the kingdom of God through the testimony of salvation. Go, therefore, Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. This is fish gate language. Baptizing them this is what we're doing this afternoon. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the fish gate. We didn't end there because Nehemiah continues and we get to the next gate. The third one is called two names, the gate of Yeshanah or the old gate. The old gate is where we come face to face with the infallible, trustworthy word of God that is timeless, endures forever. It is still today just as active in our lives, just as trustworthy, just as uh, infallible as it was a thousand years ago. That's the word of God. Listen, when you get to the old gate, these are portals. All right. Gates are portals through the wall. And as you walk through the old gate, you step onto what Jeremiah said is the ancient path of wisdom. You come into God's wisdom through the old gate, the word of God. Everyone who comes to me, Jesus said, and hears my words. This is old gate language. This is entering through the old gate. Who hears my words and does them. I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Now let me catch you up to where we are just in those three gates. This is what the author and the perfecter of our faith is doing. He starts you at the sheep gate for salvation. He brings you to the fish gate immediately for for testifying of what he has done in your life. He puts you on mission. He brings you to the old gate because if your life isn't established on the word of God, you're not going to grow. He has to establish us on the word of God. But in between the old gate and the one that we looked at two weeks ago, the valley gate, there's another gate I haven't told you about. Nehemiah doesn't mention it until you get to chapter 8 and chapter 12. It's called the gate of Ephraim. Ephraim, if you remember, he is the second son of Joseph. His name means doubly fruitful. This is a gate between the old gate and the valley gate. Now, here's, here's the symbolism. You've been saved. Life is new. You've got a new life. You've got a new heart. You've got a new nature. And all of a sudden, you want to tell people about Jesus. You want to give a reason for your salvation. It's exciting to serve in the church. It's exciting to serve in the kingdom of God. And you get into the word of God. And listen, you remember this. You remember how exciting the word of God is. You open it up and it's like God is just speaking from his mouth to your heart. Just like you're the only one in the universe and he is illuminating his truths. And all of a sudden, you're growing like a weed. You're growing spiritually. There is the fruit of God being built, being grown, being, being uh, evident in your life. That's what it means to be doubly fruitful at the gates of Ephraim. But the gate of Ephraim is followed by the valley gate, and not many of us enjoy the valley gate. The valley gate is the gate of trials. Listen, it's all downhill from the valley gate, from the old gate rather, it's all downhill from the old gate to the dung gate. It's a long sloping descent. 
And even that has symbolism for us because trials aren't found on the mountaintop where nothing grows. Trials are down deep in the valley where things are lush because we don't grow on spiritual highs. We grow when things are difficult. And God knows this. You get to the valley gate and all of a sudden something amazing begins to happen in our lives. Trials exert pressure. Whenever you think of trials and whenever you think of difficulties in your mind, imagine your heart like a sponge. And inside the membranes, those pockets of that sponge that you cannot see are the substances of your heart. And when trials come, they squeeze our hearts and come, and, and what comes pouring out of those sponges, what comes pouring out of those hearts, it's what's been in there all the time. We've just not seen them. And normally trials squeeze and often what comes out are things that are impure and things that are displeasing to the Lord. See, the valley gate has a purpose. And it's why James says, count it all joy. You know what that word count means? In the Greek, it means this. It means to lead your mind. It's a mathematical term. It means to lead your mind. In other words, before trials hit, friends, before trials even come, brothers and sisters, already begin leading your mind. If a trial is in my life, it's because my merciful, loving God has seen something in my heart that he wants to squeeze through that trial. And what comes out might be fragrant to him. It might be gold and it might be silver or it might be impure. Whatever it is, it'll either bring glory to God or it will bring something. that says we've got to bring this to God. The valley gate, you enter through it, counting it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Listen, you know the distance from the old gate to the valley gate is around 1,700 feet. It's a long way, and it's all going downhill. I know people in this church who have been in the same difficult trial for years. I don't even, listen, as a pastor, you don't even really know how to pray. I mean, what do you do? The only thing I know to do when it just goes on and on like that is, I won't leave you. I'm going to walk through this with you. And I'm going to pray for your endurance. And my heart is breaking. Sometimes trials go on and on. And when they go on and on, friends, don't lose hope. Count it joy. Lead your mind through it. God is squeezing the sponge of your heart. What's coming out is bringing forth impurity. You're going to see in a moment what you do with that impurity. But God's doing a work in your life. He's bringing the purity of your faith to the surface. He's refining you and he's bringing his name, fame, and glory. That's the valley gate. And from the valley gate to the dung gate, listen, Hezekiah tells you, or Nehemiah tells you how long it is. A cubit is around 18 inches. From the valley gate to the dung gate, it's around 1,500 feet, 1,000 cubits. 
And again, it goes on for a long time. God is doing a work. Don't, don't wonder, why God am I going through this month after month? It's your God saying, I love you enough to bring this in your life to prove your faith genuine. And we get to the next gate. This is the fifth gate on the tour. It's called the Dung Gate. It's a necessary gate for both our lives and the city of Jerusalem. And now we're at verse 14. Let's read it together. Malchiah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the Dung Gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Now you can see behind me, this is at the southern wall. We're at the bottom of the city. And the dung gate was the opening through which the people of Jerusalem took out their trash. But there's more to it than that. Now you gotta, re you gotta remember and try to climb out of your modern mindset. They didn't have a sewer system. They didn't have a septic system. They didn't have plumbing indoors. You didn't flush the toilet and it was gone. They had buckets. And it's always been important for God. Moses instructed the people because God told Moses what to say. Listen, take a shovel with you when you're in the camp of Jerusalem. And when you go to the bathroom, you dig a hole, you bury it, and you turn it over with fresh dirt because I am a holy God and I walk around in the midst of your camp. You see a person in ancient Jerusalem or ancient camp of Israel carrying a shovel, there's only one reason they're carrying it. And when you get to Jerusalem and you, you remember, listen, there is no underground New York City, Philadelphia, Allentown, Easton septic system. Listen, you go in buckets and you got to get rid of it. And oftentimes you hired people to carry it out. And when they carried it out, they would throw it through the dung gate down into the valley. But it just wasn't for trash and it wasn't just for sewage. If you were a foreigner, if you were a leper... If you were an indigent person, if you were a beggar and you died in Jerusalem, you're not going to get buried because you couldn't afford or you couldn't be buried with other people. Your body would be taken out the dung gate and thrown down into the valley to be burned. Think a little bit deeper. They didn't have plastic. They didn't have metal products that they threw away in the trash. Everything that they threw away, everything that they discarded was biological in nature. And if you leave biological trash in the midst of the city, what's coming is disease. It was supremely important that you used the dung gate regularly to rid the city of what could cause disease, rid the city of filth. The dung gate was a well-used gate in order to keep the city of Jerusalem holy and pure. Now, I'm hoping you're starting to connect because every one of these gates are symbolic. And listen, brother and sister, you, you represent Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents you. You house God. God dwells in us, brother and sister, through the Holy Spirit. And not only does God dwell in each individual believer, but where two or three or more are gathered, the Spirit of God is in our midst. He dwells 
corporately as well in this church. So Jerusalem represents even our church. Jerusalem represents when we gather together in fellowship. And there are things in our hearts, there are things in our midst that can pollute where God dwells. And they've got to be squeezed at the valley gate. The impurities come to the surface. And when we see what is impure, when we see what is displeasing to God, we've got to take it out the dung gate and throw it down the valley. The valley below is the valley of Hinnom. That might not ring a bell. It's also called the valley of the son of Hinnom. But in the Old Testament, it's the place where two kings of Israel, both King Ahaz, wicked King Ahab's father, and King Manasseh took their sons, their firstborn boys, and sacrificed them to the false god Moloch. That happened in the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom, when God brought revival, they took all the idolatrous equipment, all of the idolaters, all the pagan priests, they slaughtered them in the Valley of Hinnom and set a great fire and burned it in order to purge Israel and make her holy again. The name Hinnom developed... Now you're going to get a little more familiar with it. In the New Testament, it goes by the name Gehenna. And one of the most famous sermons that Jesus ever gave on the subject of hell was near this gate, overlooking this valley. It's the place of eternal punishment where the worm does not die and the fire does not go out. And while Jesus is preaching that sermon, smoke is rising from the Valley of Hinnom. It was a perpetual fire because new trash was going there every day. They never let the fire go out. And friends, again, as trials at the valley gate, you're going downhill and as they squeeze our hearts and difficulties exert pressure and all of a sudden what's coming to the surface are the impurities in our life and our lives, the sins that we've not yet gotten rid of. As they come to the surface, the dung gate awaits us to bring those sins and throw them out. Psalm 139 says, And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David's praying, God, show me. Show me if there's anything displeasing to you and me. How often do you pray that? I have a really good friend who teaches me, whenever you wake up in the middle of the night, maybe it's good to ask God why. Sure enough, I woke up last night and I just start praying. Lord, what's in me? Is there anything you're trying to get my attention? I mean, when else, friends, are we as still as in the middle of the night? Often God will speak to you then. He often did with David on the bed. What's coming to the surface, God, that displeases you? I've got to get it out that dung gate. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, Since we have these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion and the fear of God. How often do you get to the dung gate? Let me bring you a little deeper. Look back in the verse again, verse 14. Don't overlook the work crew. He's introducing us for a reason to the people who are repairing specific gates. Look what he says. Melchiah the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakarim. This guy is a ruler. 
This guy is in a position of authority. And he rules the district of Beth Hakarim. If you saw the Lord of the Rings trilogy and you saw the third one, then you remember the scene where the invasion is looming and they begin to set the watchtower, watchtower fires from the beacons from mountain to mountain. Listen, if you thought that was just something that Tolkien came up with or the producers of that movie came up with, that's how they warned each other in the ancient days. Beth Hakarim was a watchtower, watchtower mountain. It was a signal fire mountain. They were responsible for alerting Jerusalem and Tekoa for an invasion that's coming their way. And so you've got people in your life like Malchiah who are seeing sin in your life and you're not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. And here comes my Malchiah who is a district ruler of a watchtower mountain who says, you got to get rid of that. You got to take it to the dung gate. Who's your Malchiah? Are you humble enough to hear that person speak into your life? Years ago, I had a person in our church whose wife, their, their marriage was just, I didn't know if they were going to make it. And I could see so clearly, because I was very good friends with them as well, I could see so clearly how poorly he was treating his wife. So I had lunch with him and I began to talk about what it's like when I'm struggling with Denise and other marriages when they struggle. And he's so alert and he's so clued into what I'm saying. And I said to him, finally, after I described this, I said, that's you right now. You would have thought that I hit him upside the head. He stopped talking. His eyes got as big as saucers. And later he said that must have been what it felt when Nathan the prophet said what he said to David. You are the man. In that instance, I was the Malchiah lighting a fire, a signal saying, you've got dung in your life. There's sin in your life. You've got to take it to the gate and you've got to throw it out. You're not listening to what God's saying. Thank God he did what God told him to do. Malchiah was a ruler. Listen, don't, don't forget this. He is a ruler and he's repairing the lowest gate, the most despicable gate in the entire wall, the smelliest there was. And here's a man, though he's in charge of a people group, and though he's in charge of a district, he says, it's not below me to work on that gate. You know why? Because don't forget what God says in Psalm 87. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. He even loves the dung gate. He loves the dung gate because it's where we get rid of sin that is obstructing his fellowship with us. We get rid of that which is breaking peace in our lives. God hungers for peace. He hungers that our hands are joined together, which is what it means to be at peace. He hungers to get rid of stuff in our lives out the dung gate so we can have fellowship with him. He loves his gate. It's the gate of repentance. Friends, it's also the gate of forgiveness. It's the gate where you let go 
of what people have done against you. It's the gate where you purge your soul of toxic impurities. There's probably nothing more toxic in your heart than unforgiveness. Probably nothing. It's the gate through which you throw and you let go of the charges of those who have hurt you and you throw them away. And listen, some of us, that's going to be an unbelievable act of God's grace because we've been hurt deeply. But that's what the dung gate is for. Why would you keep sin in your heart? When there is a gate through which you can carry it. Friends, only the humble use it. You don't get through the dung gate with any other key but humility. And I want to give you three practical ways how to get to the dung gate and get out of your heart what's been coming to the surface at the valley gate. Let me give you three things. One, the directions. This is how you repair this gate. If this gate is down in your life, this is how you repair it. The directions to this gate, listen, they're found in the Word of God. And it reveals both God's perfection and our imperfections. This is what John Calvin taught. He says the Word of God is a mirror. And when you look deeply in the Word of God, what it's going to reflect is God's holy perfection. And when you see God's holy perfection, all of a sudden, all of your impurities, even little ones as well as big ones, become glaring. I never noticed that about me before. I can't believe as I see this in me, in light of God's perfection, what, an, what a horrible, horrendous thing that's in my heart. Listen, if you're not in the Word of God, you simply cannot repair the Dungate. Because if you do not have the holy standards of God taking as truth captive your mind, your mind rather taking those as captive and bleeding into your soul, you cannot see what is despicable to God. If you want to know, if one of you came up to me and said, what's, what's the... What's the most common thing you've said in your 20, almost 20 years of pastoral ministry? Here's a, here it is. You've got to get in the Word. There's no hope. There's no hope if you're not in the Word of God. It is God's tool for redemption. It's the living and active Word of God. If you cut yourself off from the Word of God because you're not disciplined, or you don't get it, or it's too difficult to read, listen, it's the Spirit of God's job to guide you into truth and illuminate these truths. Listen, you've got to get into the Word of God. If you don't, He does not renew your mind. But if you're going to repair the dung gate, you've got to go to number two. Not only are the directions to the gate, listen, if you're lost and somebody starts rattling off 15 turns to get to your destination and then they say, listen, those are the directions, but if you want, I'll go with you. I'll show you personally where it is. That's what I want. That's why I'm going to prefer that every time. Listen, the guide who accompanies us to this gate is the Spirit of God. The Word of God shows you how to get to it. The Spirit of God says, listen, I'm not letting you go on your own because I know what your flesh will do. You'll see the dung gate and you'll say one of two things. Okay, I saw it. I could turn around and go home. Or you're going to get frightened because you don't trust God's mercy to be big enough. I'm taking your hand. In my righteous right hand, and I'm going to walk you to the dung gate and through it. And I'm going to take your arm, and I'm going to help you learn number three. 
And number three is this. The way you open up this gate is through confession. So you gotta keep, you gotta start thinking, friends, of what biblical confession really is. There's two parts to it. And we all get the first part. We don't get the second. And without the second part, what you do is you leave to go home from the dung gate and here comes your sin and the guilt and the shame trailing along behind you. See, confession's a two-layer cake. The first top layer is, God, I see it. I agree. You've shown me through your word. I acknowledge that that sin is in me and my heart is revolting. It's revulsing against that sin just like yours. That's the top layer. But there's another layer of confession. It means to cast, rear back your arm and throw something. See, if you don't take what God has shown you and fling it with all your soul's might onto the mercies of God, you will leave the dung gate with it trailing behind you. You want to know why you're struggling with shame and guilt and lingering regret? It's because you made it to this dung gate, you agreed with God, you acknowledged it's wrong, but you didn't cast it down into the valley of Hinnom where His mercy can burn it. You brought it home. You've got to acknowledge and you've got to throw it away. You've got to trust that God's mercy is always bigger than your sin. And you've got to realize, look at your text, look at verse 15. This gate has bars, this gate has locks and bolts. And there's a reason why it has those. Because when you throw the sin through the dung gate down into the valley of Hinnom, you turn around and you close that gate and you lock it in the truth of the infallible word of God. He has taken that sin. He has plunged it beneath the blood of Jesus. It can never return to my account. The charge can never come back to me. I will never answer for this before Jesus. It is gone forevermore. And you lock the gate behind you and you go home in peace and get back to the fish gate and say, Lord, I'm going to give you a new song this morning and testify. If you don't put the bolts in place, you're going to bring your sins regret home. But when you leave the dung gate and Nehemiah takes us on tour to the sixth gate, He's going to show us the next stop, which is the fountain gate. And listen, friends, if you don't make it to the fountain gate after the dung gate, you're going to live in regret the rest of your life. The fountain gate has a purpose, verse 15. And Shalom, the son of Kol, Jose, ruler, here's another ruler, of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. If you want to know where the district of Mizpah was, it was eight miles north of Jerusalem. And again, it's located on a hill serving as a lookout from invasion from the north. It was another mountain, another high hill where they built a watchtower signal fire in case an invader came from the north. Here again is somebody, this Shalom, son of Kol, Jose, who served as a watchman over the people of Israel. And here's the Shaloms in your life that have walked with you to the dung gate and who won't leave you at the dung gate and they make you press on to the fountain gate because it's at the fountain gate that all of a sudden your life is built up in faith. Here's what it is. Let me take you a little bit deeper look. Look at the second part of verse 15 and we'll look at it. 
And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. Now, to a lot of us, this doesn't mean a whole lot. So let me take you behind the scenes. Listen, if you have not been listening much yet, you got a clue in now. This is huge. The pool of Shelah is where the water gathered as it flowed into the city from the pool of Siloam and it made it from that pool into the fountain gate area through a tunnel that a man named Hezekiah built. Let me tell you about this tunnel. Hezekiah, king of Judah, invasion he knew was coming. He took two work crews. He started one at this spring. And he started another one. Listen, 1,750 feet away on the other side of Granite Hills. And he started these two crews hacking and digging their way, tunneling their way. If you've been to Israel, if you've been to Jerusalem, you've been there. Everybody goes there if you visit Jerusalem. They've started at opposite ends, 1,750 feet apart, and worked their way toward each other through solid granite, solid bedrock rock, and found their way only inches off. And they jointed, they connected the tunnel. It's Hezekiah's tunnel. He built it to bring water from that pool down inside Jerusalem to this fountain gate in case invasion laid siege to Jerusalem. It's an ancient work of marvelous engineering. It's an ancient marvel. This fountain gate has a purpose. You see, the water that... This is, this is fun. The water that flowed through that tunnel that made it to the fountain gate. Listen, it was called in the Hebrew, Kai Mayim. Kai Mayim, if you know that term, that phrase means living water. And living water is water that is alive. It's moving water. Water that's in a cistern, which is a holding tank, or a well is not ever called living water. Living water is water that moves. And when you think of a fountain, if you're thinking of a geyser that's in the middle of a park, that's not the ancient imagery of a fountain. A fountain was water that moves, water that's fresh, water that revives, water that brings life. And it's always symbolic. Listen, it's always symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you two passages. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring. If it needs to get clearer than that, Jesus makes it clear. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. Living water is the spirit of God. The fountain gate is the gate that points to the Holy Spirit, that reminds every single believer there is living, fresh water of the Spirit that is welling up within you to eternal life. Now listen, you've just been to the dung gate. You're going counterclockwise around the wall. And the impurities in your... Listen, if, are you going through hard times? Are you experiencing difficulty in your life? Then listen, God's squeezing... Trials always exert pressure, and it's squeezing on your heart, and what's coming out of your heart is either passing the test of faith or failing the test of faith. 
And God always wants you to pass. Satan always wants you to fail. God always wants your faith to be proved sincere. Satan always wants your faith to be proved groundless. And so God's bringing these trials at the valley gate. And when he emerges, what is displeasing to him? You walk it through the dung gate. You throw it into the valley of Gehenna. And you have to get next to the fountain gate. It's where your heart is made clean. It's where the Spirit of God fills you with His presence and with His power. Listen, the Holy, listen, the Holy Spirit will not fill your heart if there's rubbish and sin inside. He'll live in there, but you won't have the fullness of the Spirit of God. The fruit of the Spirit will be produced in greater measure than ever before when you go from the dung gate to the fountain gate. And a lot of people don't want to do this. They want to go right to the fountain gate. Skip the valley, or skip the sheep, the fish, the old, and the valley, and the dung. Let's just get to the fountain gate. You ever been to a church where everybody wants to speak in tongues? Everybody wants to see healings happen? That's fountain gate evidence. Of the Spirit of God. But you can't get to that until you walk through the blood of Christ at the cross, and until you get on mission serving God, and until you immerse your life on the old path that leads to the ancient paths of wisdom, and until God brings you to the valley gate to make you pure, and you get to the dung gate to throw it away, and then you get to the fountain gate and He fills you with His presence and power. That's the fountain gate, it's the gate of the Spirit of God. Friends, maybe right now things have been emerging from your heart, rising to the surface that you know, you know, are displeasing to God. I said, I don't know. Only you and God do. But if you don't take what He is showing you, and bring it through the dung gate and throw it into the valley of Gehenna. And let his mercy burn it away. And find your way to the fountain gate. Friends, you're going to be back at the sheep gate before you know it. And your wall cannot be rebuilt. If you hold on to sin, despite God's voice speaking to you, despite the evidence that the trials is reve are revealing, and you refuse to get through that dung gate, you cannot experience the fullness and joy of the Spirit of God. And the fruit of the Spirit of God will not be produced in your life. Maybe you need to get to that dung gate. Would you close your eyes for a moment? I'm going to ask that you be unbelievably courageous. It's worth it. I'm sure that some in here, maybe even many, God's been speaking to you in this sermon. I, I know what it feels like when God is doing that. Sometimes it feels like you're the only one in the sanctuary. Other times you go into arguing mode with God, you feel that heat rising up within you. And you begin justifying and explaining why. Yeah, I saw the Dungate. Maybe I didn't go through it, but it was enough. That's not true. 
It means you're holding on to the sin and you did not lock the door behind you. If that's you this morning, the best thing I can do as your pastor is ask you to do boldly what is going to take probably likely most of your courage. Stand up, excuse yourself, get out of the pew, and come down front and let me pray for you because it's time to take the the dung gate seriously. I appreciate that immediate response. Listen, if that's you, get down here and let's pray it out. And I don't care if you're a leader of this church and someone who everybody sees as being respectable and a spiritual giant, if that's you, swallow the pride and get down here and let's pray this stuff out. If you're wrestling right now, that means you should come down. And man, have I wrestled. Anybody else? I had someone a while ago very, very angry at me because I did an imitation like this. And they said, I don't understand why you think we have to come down front. And the truth is, you don't. But when you do and you make that public declaration that there is sin in your life and you are serious about it, that will so galvanize your conviction. And this could be the beginning of the Spirit of God giving you more fullness than you've ever had before. Anybody else? Those of you who are down here, if you could look at me, let me make sure you know before I pray for you. God's mercy is always greater than your sin. You will never outsin God's love and mercy. Never. Doesn't mean you should try. It means that's how endlessly compassionate his mercies are new every morning for you. He loves you. You are the apple of his eye. You're the pupil of which his eyelids close protectively. You're his blood-bought treasure. He loves you. Remember that. And let that begin to sift in your heart as you go through the dung gate. And as you rear back your arm, you've got the Spirit of God holding on. And he's helping you throw it harder than you ever have before. And he's going to help you lift your arms up and set the bars and the bolts in place so that you can walk back home today in peace, knowing that God took it and plunged what you're giving him in the blood of the Valley of Gehenna. And it is gone forever. It will never come back to you. Know that when I pray for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for everybody that's down here. Their faithfulness, Lord, their courage, their conviction, their ears that heard you speak to them this morning. And Lord, I don't know what's going on in their lives. I don't know what the the valley gate has been revealing 
I don't know the difficulties and, tri- and trials that they're going through. I know, Lord, they're down here because of one reason. You have revealed to them that they need to throw something out of their life through the dung gate. Lord, rear back their arms right now. Let them acknowledge and agree it is wrong and let them throw it harder than their soul ever has and let them lock the bars in place and go home in peace and take them, Father, straight away to the the fountain gate. Lord, let the Spirit of God, even right now, begin to gurgle up in their hearts, cleansing away the debris the stains, making them whiter than snow, return to them the joy of their salvation so that they can serve at the fish gate and love the old gate and endure the valley gate. Lord, help them. Let your mercy be overwhelmingly persuasive in the blood of Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you. And it's his name, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.